Open your Bibles tonight to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, please. 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. Last week, we just began a new series from this chapter. We're going to go all of the way through it, by the way. I don't know how many weeks it's going to take, but probably more than you think. Last week, we spoke about the prominence of love and... Uh, talked about the meaning of the word itself and uh, how important that is. We also talked about uh, not only the meaning, but the majesty of love described there in those first three verses. It's greater than spiritual gifts, and he mentioned several, uh, several of the nine that uh, are described in other places in the Bible, but... uh, it's greater than the spiritual gifts, and it's greater than sacrifice in verse number 3. And then we talked about uh, and ended up last week uh, talking about the, the medicine of love because whenever we look at the purpose of Paul writing this letter, uh, we talked about the fact that it was the cure for all that ills the church, and uh, that was a troubled church. And Paul was writing for the purpose of providing what they needed to solve the problems that they were involved in. Well, tonight, we're going to look at the picture of love, and we can't do this in in just one brief message. And so, as we think about the picture of love, this is part one, and we're going to go down through uh, all of them during the course of the study, and... uh, talk about the fact that, and as I said this morning, it's maybe better to think about a, a picture album and you look at one snapshot and then another and another and another as you go through the album. So this is part one of the picture of love and it's patience. Verse number four is our text tonight, charity suffereth long. Charity suffereth long. And then he proceeds after this to give us this picture of love. And, and and don't forget, as I said, the Bible doesn't actually define love, but rather it describes love. It gives us the qualities of love, and that way we get a picture of what it's all about. And, and beginning here, if you go on through the remainder of this chapter, you'll see that there are 15 of these snapshots, 15 of these different qualities of love that he mentions. And so, uh, boy, it's just so easy to look at that and say, well, whenever you put it all together, you you actually get a picture of Christ. That's exactly what it amounts to. Often think about, uh, you know, there in in, uh, Philippians chapter number 4, where Paul's telling us how to cope with the cares of life and We're to not worry about anything, but rather, he says, to think on these things and whatsoever things are pure and lovely and honest and of a good report and so forth. And again, you look at those things and you get a picture of Christ. And so whenever you put all of these together, and there are many others that could be mentioned, you get right back to what he says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, looking unto Jesus. That is the key to everything for the child of God, looking unto Jesus, that we stop repeatedly, daily, and that we consider who we are and what we have as a result of the person and work 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. So tonight we're going to look at one of these snapshots in this album of love, and it has to do with uh, with patience. I ended up last week saying that, and we spoke about love being uh, a medicine, and uh, I did that for a reason, but because it meets the needs. But when you stop and think about it, you know, medicine can be a bitter pill to swallow sometimes. Uh, it really can. Not all medicine is pleasant tasting. And I can remember when I was a boy, you know, everybody had a home cure for everything. And one of them was if you smashed your finger, you dipped it in kerosene. Now, I don't know who come up with that idea, but let me tell you, it's not a fun thing to stick a busted thumb down in a can of kerosene. It just literally sets you on fire. So medicine can be that way. And I mention it because as Jeremiah speaks about the Word of God, you know, it, there is a bitterness to it as well as a sweetness. And it brings us face to face with our faults and with our failures and, and boys, we look at this first thing tonight and think about it being a bitter pill to swallow. Uh, notice, he says that love suffereth long. Man, if, if I fail anywhere, it's here. And I think that's true of most people. And sometimes, you know, we wonder why in the world is everybody so touchy and so temperamental and I think that describes uh, the society that we live in today don't you everybody's got a chip on their shoulder everybody's just looking for some reason to pitch a fit and they're quick tempered and ready to blow up over anything if things don't go their way and, and the chances are you know that maybe you've never associated this sort of impatience with a lack of love but notice what he says, charity suffereth long. And so as we examine this quality of love, I want you to consider three things, starting with an explanation. The Greek word that's translated suffereth long literally means to be long-tempered. Now That's kind of like saying, you know, not having a short fuse. It's to be patient with people under provocation. And it's indicating that we do not retaliate. And that's generally exactly what we want to do. We want to get even. We want to get back at somebody. You know, we want to retaliate. And uh, uh, it's like the old saying, you know, if we live by the rule, an eye for an eye, the whole world would be blind. Boy, is that ever true. One of the early church fathers, I can't remember who it was, said of this word, he said, it is a word which is used of the man who is wronged and who easily has it in his power to avenge himself, but will never do it. Isn't that great? He has the power to avenge the wrong against him, but he refuses to do it. And so that's what we're that's what we're talking about. And maybe maybe you're starting to feel uncomfortable already. I I know I was as I thought about this message, and uh, uh, and and those who know me and how I tend to be impatient a lot of times. Well, uh, yeah, I'm. It makes me uncomfortable, but I can't quit preaching just because I fail. You know, I, I, and uh, like the little kid's song, you know, God's still working on me. 
I don't know about you, but I got a long ways to go. And someone wrote, patience is a virtue, possess it if you can, found seldom in a woman, never in a man. So I, I don't think I'm the only one in that boat. I think that's more true of us than what we would like to admit. The strange thing about this, and it might surprise you, is that patience has not always been considered a virtue by a lot of people in every society. For example, the Greeks, they thought of it as a sign of weakness. I mean, it sounds like a street gang, doesn't it? You're going to let him dish you, man? And yeah, man, you got a fight going on. I'll, I'll never forget I, the first time I heard that phrase, dish you. And I had two guys in the parking lot of the church, and they were about to go to Fist City. And uh, I went out there and said, what in the world are you guys doing? He dissed me. He what? You know, what does that mean? He dissed me. <laughs> oh, man, I, whenever you've been in prison, you don't let anybody diss you, disrespect you. Okay, I got the picture. He hurt your feelings, you know. Something happened, and, and uh, he felt like he was being disrespected. Well... The Greeks thought that it was a sign of weakness if you showed any forbearance toward other people. They, you thought, you know, to be a real man, you, you've got to get back at the person, you've got to right the wrong, and uh, kind of like the dirty, hairy mentality, you know, go ahead, punk, and make my day. And a lot of people still think that way, even today. And by the way, that is the very root of the problem with a lot of people in this world today we we sometimes we wonder why is it that you you take maybe a vote goes the wrong way uh, something happened in the community that will upset people and so the, the next thing they do start burning down buildings their own communities by the way it reminds me of here, I can't remember whether it was Baltimore or Milwaukee or, I don't know, some of the recent riots. And so they're burning down this community, and this one woman says to, you know, her people there that's burning down, says, stop burning down our community. You're burning down our own businesses. Go, go out <laughs> Go, go out there and burn down the, in the suburbs all of those nice houses. Like, you know, that's okay. Go burn them out, you know. Well, it's not okay. It's not okay to, for us to retaliate. I, you know, I don't think I've ever in my lifetime ever in a sermon quoted from Leonardo da Vinci. I, I don't know why I would. I was at the Louvre and Kathy, I didn't even go, you know, go in. I don't want to go in there. I've been at the Louvre and I, and I the, I didn't care about going in there. I, I'd rather look at a sunset than all of those paintings in there. That's all imitation stuff. But anyway, my mind's really wandering tonight. Too much sugar, I guess. But some way I run across this quote by Leonardo da Vinci, and he must have been a quite intelligent guy other than just a great artist. He said, patience serves as a protection Against wrongs as clothes do against coal. For if you put on more clothes as the coal increases, it will have no power to hurt you. So in like manner, you must grow in patience when you meet with great wrongs, and they will then be powerless to vex your mind. I read that and I thought, why didn't somebody tell me that when I was in the first grade? 
Well, I wouldn't have understood it. I realized that. But there's a lesson there that I needed to learn early in life because early in life, I mean, from the very, from the very get go, you know, I just didn't understand this thing about treating people nice unless you're trying to get something. You, you, you know, what was the sense in being nice? And, and, uh, when we stop and think about the, how that our needs are met by meeting the needs of others and not retaliating against them. So that, that kind of explains what we're talking about here tonight when we look at this picture of love and we say that it's patient. It's like Chuck Swindoll said, true patience is waiting without worrying. Waiting without worrying. You know, a lot of people say, well, I'm just waiting on the Lord yeah, they're waiting on the Lord, and at the same time, they're worrying themselves into a nervous fit. You, you know, this matter of waiting is a whole lot more than just patiently enduring and putting up with the situation. It's accepting what God has allowed or what God has caused. That, that's, that's what it's all about. Well... That's enough of the explanation. Let's think about some examples. And boy, if you're going to do that, you've got to start with the best one, right? That's God. Think about God himself. I mean, after all, he's to be our example. Uh, unless something is really drastically changed, he's to be our example. We're to look to him and depend upon him. And of course, Second Peter in chapter number 3 tells us, that he is long-suffering. Now get this, so many times we wonder why God does what he does. We wonder what it is that would prompt God to do the things that he does. And we look around at all of the injustices in the world today, and we wonder why would God allow something like that? Why would God permit that to happen? And the fact of the matter is that God is long-suffering to usward. He's not willing that any should perish. Think about that. Watch me. Talk to me. Look at me here. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we cared that much about the people that we meet? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is God's desire for every single one of us. You know, everything about God is amazing. We think about God's wisdom. We think about God's power. All We think about God's love. But boy, whenever you stop and think about the fact that God is long-suffering to usward, that just knocks me off of my feet. Because I realize how sinful I am, how stubborn I am. I realize how stupid I can be. And as I think about what I am and then to be slapped in the face with the truth, that God loves you nevertheless. He's not willing that any should perish. Listen, that's our example. If God loved us unconditionally, that's the way we ought to love one another. We see the same thing in Christ. We're talking about the examples of being long-suffering. And we think about him there at Calvary where he said what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I, 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 I can't imagine that. 
I, really, I'm honest. I, I think about me trying to put myself in some, you know, some kind of a similar situation where, where I've just been beaten to a bloody pulp and now I'm nailed to the cross. And, and I've got to tell you, I, 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 I think maybe I would be more prone to be cursing them instead of saying, Father, forgive them. Oh, I, you know, I'm like you. I'd like to think that I'd do exactly what Jesus did. I'd like to think that. But I know me. Be real easy to revert to cursing and think, you're taking, you know, my children's daddy out of this world. You're taking my wife's husband out of this world and leaving her alone. And be real easy to find some reason. But love suffereth long. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, I know it's easy to look at, you know, God and consider the expression of His greatness in the person of Christ and to think to ourselves, oh yeah, but we could never ever live up to anything like that. Well, we could get a lot closer than what we are, don't you think? And there's evidence of that. And the evidence is here in the Bible. I think about Joseph. And his life to me was one of the most amazing things in the Bible. Here's a fellow that is hated by his brothers. He is sold into slavery he, he's deprived of being with his father and with his family. He's deprived of all of the blessings that they enjoy. Everything seems to be lost. He's falsely accused. He's in prison. Everything is going against him. Nothing's working in his favor. And yet, in all of that, he behaved himself wisely. In all of that, he waited for the promise of God to be realized. What great patience that was. And think about the love that he demonstrated when finally, finally, he, you know, the, the brothers as they come there to Egypt and, and in search of food, they have no idea who he is. But as he reveals himself, he says to them, look, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He said, don't do yourself any harm. Isn't it wonderful that he was willing to accept them after all of that? So that what a great example that is. There's another example. I'll draw this one from the New Testament. A man with the name of Stephen. I'll never forget the first time. We were in a youth meeting, actually, and a couple of teenagers, I think they were PKs, and they got up and sang. Kathy might even remember it. They got up and sang a song called, I See Jesus. I'd never heard that song before in my life. Boy, I tell you what, I, I thought I was going to go through the rooftop. I was a belt. I see Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. And whenever you think about Stephen as he's being stoned, and, and here, here is a man who's done nothing but good, and he's, he's being stoned, being put to death, and it says he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lay not this sin to their charge. How much like Jesus is that? Wow. <laughs> Lay not this sin to their charge. Dude, they're killing you. Did you feel that rock hit you upside the head? Sure he did. But yet in all of that, he did not retaliate against them. We would have been chunking rocks back at him, right? 
Sure, chances are. We've been running for our life. But he kneeled down there and prayed for those who hated him. Now, when we look at all of that, I, I don't think there's anyone here who would deny the fact that we are in desperate need of a greater love. We all need a love that's greater than, than, than what we have in our life. We all fail it to some extent. I, oh, I know, yeah, you, you're, you're better at it than somebody else. I, yeah, I, I know that. Uh, but you're not anywhere near where you ought to be, and neither am I. There's room for improvement. And the sad thing is, I'm, I've got to wonder if we really see the value, the practical value of love. And these examples ought to, ought to help us do that. Now, I want you to think for a few minutes about the effects, the effects of this kind of love, the effects of love that is long-suffering. And the first thing that comes to my mind is the fact that it reflects Christ. As, as we just saw from the verse there a few minutes ago. And if I could only mention one thing, just one effect, this would be it. The fact that in loving others unconditionally, we are reflecting a likeness of Christ. And by the way, you know, if we expect other people to believe that we are indeed Christian people, if we really truly know the Lord as our Savior, if we're really truly followers of Christ, if we expect them to believe that, there's got to be an evidence of it. And Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples and that you love one another. Keep in mind, he, was, he didn't say, they'll know you're my disciples if you love everybody in the world. Uh, he didn't say that. He said, if you love one another, and he's speaking to, to the first church. In other words, the way that they interact. I'll never forget moving to an area many years ago. And as, uh, as I was talking to some people out on visitation, introducing myself, and there had been a situation in the church many years before and, and they said, oh, yeah, I'm familiar with that church. And, uh, I, I knew such and such preacher, and, uh, yeah, I knew all about what he did. And after all of those years, they had never forgotten that. That was the first thing they remembered was the fault of a preacher in that church. And it tainted the reputation of that church for all of those, all of those decades, by the way. And and we all know the number one excuse for not attending church is what? Well, there's too many hypocrites in the church. Well, the truth of the matter is there really are too many hypocrites in the church because one would be too many. But listen, we're all imperfect, and we better learn how to love one another. And in doing that, by the way, and the world is on the outside and they're watching how we interact with each other. And, uh, boy, if we're not reflecting Christ to them, then you better believe we're sending a wrong message to them. We'll never be able to win them to Christ until they see His likeness in us. So it reflects Christ, but it also reveals our character. You, I've often thought about the story of, 
Abraham Lincoln. And, uh, of course, you know, some of you might be real students of the Civil War, and it might be you're not a Lincoln fan or, or whatever, but, you know, you don't have to agree with everything about the man, and I'm wondering why I brought this up. Well, I know I did why I did, because, uh, listen, there's some people that are really strong uh, believers, you know, in states' rights and what have you, and the, what really prompted the Civil War and all of that. Don't let all of that, don't let all of that uh, cloud your judgment in the good things about that good man. But he he had an enemy by the name of Stanton, and Stanton hated Lincoln. In fact, he gave him a nickname. He said he is the original gorilla. He, he mocked him every chance that he got, and uh, and Lincoln never retaliated. And whenever it come time to appoint a man as the Secretary of War, he appointed Stanton. And somebody said to him, said, why in the world would you do that? That man is your worst enemy. And Lincoln replied, because he is the best man for the job. Now, let me tell you, that's greatness there, that I'm not going to let my personal feelings get in the way. He's the best man for the job, and I'm going to put him in that position. When Lincoln was assassinated, Stanton said, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. Now, you don't have to agree with what he said. I'm not trying to make that point. Don't miss my point. The point is, whenever others see true, honest love in our heart, it reveals what we really are. It reveals our character. But let's bring it down on a more spiritual level. Remember there in Matthew chapter 5, the Lord's talking about love your enemies. Do good to those that despitefully use you and so on and so forth. And he, he gives us that list of things about the way that we ought to that we ought to treat one another. And, and, and in so doing, he says, by this you'll be able to convince others that you are indeed a child of God. He, he's not saying this is the way you become a child of God. This isn't the way to salvation. But others will see, as revealed by your character, the likeness of Christ. And as a result of that, they will know you are indeed a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I, I got to tell you, we are in desperate need of convincing people of that very fact. I, I talked to someone this morning. I want to know if I had a few minutes to talk, and we talked about some different things pertaining to doctrine. Very important issues, by the way. And, and, uh, and we need to do that. But, but somewhere along the line, we can't divorce our doctrine from, you know, our attitude toward people and our love for people. It's like that old saying, people don't care how much you know, they know how much you care. There's a lot of truth to that. And, you know, we get this mentality that the only thing that matters is if what I believe is right. No, it's not. How you behave is also important. It's not just what you believe, it's how we behave. And, and if, if our behavior doesn't reflect the likeness of Christ in that we are long-suffering to other people, then we are, we are failing the test. 
Well, there, there's another result of this, and that's the fact that it reduces conflict. Like it or not, we're social creatures. When I was a young boy, I always thought about, and you've heard me say it, I don't know how many times, that I, I, wanted, I wanted to be a hermit. I wanted, I wanted to live up in the Ozark Mountains in an old one-room shack with a hound dog and a shotgun and a fishing pole. And, of course, Bev changed all of that when I saw her out on the playground. But I started getting interested, you know, in, in the opposite sex. That, uh, but that, that was kind of the way I thought, you know, I don't want to be around people. Just give me, you know, give me a 10 acres out in the country somewhere and a 10-foot high fence around it where they can't get in. That, that's, all, that's all I want. But listen, we're social creatures. You, we don't know how blessed we are. We think about and being in some of these foreign countries and those Larry and Taryn and a bunch of them went down to Mexico and uh, I, we complain about having neighbors just cramped right up against us, you know. How'd you like to live down there in some of those shacks where there's people, I mean, everywhere, all around you? you <laughs> there, there is no solitude. Uh, we're social creatures. God made us that way, and it's not good for man to be alone and every area of our life is affected by our attitude toward other people. Now keep in mind, Paul is writing this to a church that has a four-way split. They are arguing and bickering about, you know, if you don't believe me, look back in chapter number 3, and it, it's obvious that this church is in deep trouble. And he says, verse 1, I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, and neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Now look at verse number 5. Well, verse 4. And while one saith, I am of Paul. Man, I love the way he preaches, you know. I, I love his brilliance. I, 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 I'm going to follow Paul. And another says, I am of Apollos. Oh, he was the eloquent one. He was the Spurgeon of the day, you know. Boy, he could, he could paint those flyery word phrases and just was so impressive. He says, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is of Apollos but ministers by whom ye believed as the Lord gave to every man? Think about these people bickering one with another, and the reason, the reason for all of it, at the root of the problem, was the fact that they failed to love each other as they should. Now, keep in mind that this church, in chapter 1, he tells them that they possessed all of the spiritual gifts. That's the amazing part. It goes to show you that a church can possess all of the spiritual gifts and yet not operate according to the Spirit. That's what's going on here. There's no reason for their failures. They have all of these gifts that God has given to them, but they're not able to function properly because love is missing. Love enables us to be patient with one another, and that reduces the conflict because it builds up unity. There is no place for revenge and, and for malice in the life of a Christian. Ephesians chapter number 4, and I know some of you could quote this 
from memory and, and, and should be able to. And it's absolutely tremendous verse here in chapter number four. And I want you to notice what he says down in verse number 31. Let all bitterness. Now notice that word let. That means that, you know, that we have some control over it. Let it happen. In other words, we, we are responsible for our actions. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Notice, and be ye kind. We'll get to that next week. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Oh, wouldn't it be a great thing in churches and in families that that we would learn to be more long-suffering with each other and to think about it reducing the conflict that exists? This church, if you look in chapter 6, this church was was bickering to the extent that they were going to court with one another. Oh, you know, he did me wrong. I'm going to take him to court. I'm going to sue him. And and Paul reminds them there that real true love would would cause them to allow themselves to be defrauded. Isn't that a great thought? In other words, you allow you're allowing them to get by with it. You're allowing them to to cheat you. That's what it amounts to. He said that that's what you ought to do. Instead of trying to contend for your rights and standing up for yourself, he says, allow yourself to be defrauded. Let them get the best end of the deal. That's all right. You know, and it restores calm whenever we're long-suffering toward one another. We think about the troublesome times that we live in today. We think about how our nation is so divided, and and, and I got to tell you, I, I often wonder how in the world did we get here? How did we get to this place that is it, it, just shocking? This is not the America that I grew up in. This is not not the country that I knew as a boy. And the sad thing is, I. I'm made to realize that it's not getting better, it's getting worse. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. It's troublesome times. There's a rough road in front of us, and we need to be prepared. This world's not an easy place to live in. I mean, I don't care if you've got a, you know, a six-figure income and you live in a mansion and drive a Mercedes and you've you got the world by the tail on the downhill swing and everything is going your way. You don't seem to have a problem in the world. You're strong and you're healthy and you've got friends all around you. Let me tell you, you are going to experience difficulties in this life and there's no way to escape it because man that's born of a woman is a few days in what? Full of trouble. It's true of everybody. Sometimes we act like we're the only ones who's got a problem. No, we've all got problems. And, and we need to learn how to, to love one another even when they don't live up to our expectations. We need how, to, to learn how to deal with the issues to restore calm. We desire that so much, you know, in our communities, for example. Look, for the most part, we, we don't really do too good at it even in our churches there needs to be a restoration of calm in the lord's churches because uh, 
so much bickering and infighting and what have you, and it just exhausts our energy. It saps our strength. It sours our spirit. It makes us miserable. Even to the point, as I said this morning, talking about determination. You know, that resolve that, hey, I'm not going to quit and you're not going to stop me. I know this is God's will for my life and I'm going to do it regardless of what anybody thinks about it. And the only way that we can do that is to love one another to such a great degree that, uh, that we refuse to give up. And by that, I mean we refuse to give up on people. I wrote an article, I haven't sent it out yet. I don't know when I will, but the title of it is, I Love Imperfect Churches. You know, and you you say, well, uh, you know, I, I, I don't like imperfect churches. You Listen, you better, because all churches are imperfect. All of them. There is no perfect church. We better learn how to love one another. Somebody used to, I remember years ago, it was a common saying that marriage is a 50-50 proposition, you know. No, it's not. It's never been. It is a hundred hundred proposition. It takes a hundred percent effort on both parties in order to make it work. And the key to all of this is us loving one another to the extent that we'll be patient with each other because look we're all in the we're still all in the process like the little kid song i said earlier he's still working on me you know none of us are exactly what we ought to be there's room for improvement on all of us and the thing about it is you know we can study about love and we can get down to this point where we see the desperate need of it and we can resolve in our heart I'm going to start loving people. You know, we can make that firm resolve and scotch our feet and determine that I'm going to do better. No, look, that you'll never do it that way. Because the ability to love people the way that we need to love them is beyond what man can do. It's beyond us, folks. Love is part of the fruit of the Spirit. And only the Spirit of God can produce that kind of love in the life of a Christian. So, if I'm ever going to be able to love you like I ought to, if I'm ever going to be able to love my wife and my children as I should, then I've got to surrender myself to the control of the Spirit of God where He can do through me what I can't do for myself. You see, it's not about what you and I do. It's not about our ability he is the enabler. He's the change agent. He's the one that makes us who we need to be. And we've got to take a hands-off approach to our life. As Paul said, I don't count my life dear. It's not that important whether I live or die. The only thing that's important is if God's will is done in my life. And I can promise you and I can prove to you that it's God's will that you be long-suffering with other people. It's not just a lesson to be learned. It's a life to be lived. And we can only do that as we rely upon the Lord. Let's stand together. Father, how I thank you, Lord, for those that have loved me uh, when there was absolutely nothing lovable about me. Those that 
that showed unconditional love, those that demonstrated the likeness of Christ, and and through their witness and through their example, it made me realize just how how much I failed. And I pray tonight, Lord, that you will help us as a, as a church to understand the importance of us loving one another, which involves us being patient with one another. Lord, forgive us of the times that we murmur and complain and point out the, the faults of other people. Help us, Lord, to be an encourager to them. Help us, Lord, to lift them up instead of trying to tear them down. Remind us of our own faults and failures when we tend to be so critical of others. Help us to do what we can't do ourselves, to truly love our neighbor and to realize that our neighbor is that person that's in need, whoever they are, that we'll love them even as you loved us. But we ask it in Jesus' dear name. Let's stand.